So class is back in session. And in this class, we're going to discuss pathology, clinical presentation, and in management of overactive bladder and urge incontinence. Now, as you probably already know, overactive bladder and urge incontinence are very common disorders. You hear it from patients, you've probably heard it from friends and family, and you definitely see it in television commercials. So let's quickly review our definitions and our clinical presentation in pathology, and then we'll spend most of our time on assessment and management. So overactive bladder, a relatively new term coined by the pharmacologic industry, syndrome of urgency, frequency, and nocturia in the absence of known pathology like a urinary tract infection. Overactive bladder may or may not be associated with leakage. If you have urgency and frequency nocturia, but no incontinence, that's known as dry OAB, more common in men. If you have urgency, frequency, nocturia, and leakage, that's known as wet OAB, and that's more common in women. What is the problem? Well, as the name tells you, overactive bladder. So it's clearly the bladder. The pathology lies within the bladder. The bladder is contracting and emptying when it should be stretching and storing. So it does not store normal volumes of urine. As a result, the patient perceives fullness at low volumes, perceives intense urgency at low volumes, and cannot consistently delay voiding until it's a socially appropriate time and place. So you see in this slide, a normal bladder stores close to capacity before you experience any significant urgency to void. But if you have an overactive bladder, even relatively small volumes of urine in the bladder can trigger this sensation of intense urgency and you feel as if you are totally full. So what causes it? And the answer is many times we don't know. That's why we have theories instead of an answer. We do know that patients who have some kind of neurologic disorder, such as CVA or Parkinson's or MS or traumatic brain injury, we know that they frequently report frequency, urgency, nocturia, and difficulty delaying voiding in a, until an appropriate time and place. And in those patients, this is considered to be a neurogenic form of incontinence, a neurogenic form of bladder dysfunction, because the central problem is not within the bladder. The central problem lies within the cortex, because in the end, it's the responsibility of the cortex to synthesize data, make decisions as to whether voiding is appropriate or inappropriate, and keep the bladder and the sphincter in storage mode until voiding is appropriate. So if it's neurogenic, it presents as overactive bladder urge incontinence. It is managed as if the bladder was the issue, but in reality, it's an issue in the cortex and we're trying to compensate. Within the bladder itself, 
Overactive bladder symptomatology can be caused either by sensory dysfunction or by motor dysfunction. So remember that within the lining of the bladder, you have all of these sensory receptors and you have signaling molecules. So those receptors respond to stretch, they respond to irritants, they respond to pathogens, and so normally you'll get a sensation that the bladder's full, that message will be forwarded to the cortex by the signaling molecules in the urothelium when the bladder's full or inappropriately because of a bladder infection or inflammatory condition. But in patients with overactive bladder, Sometimes they have intense urgency at low volumes. There is no urinary tract infection. There is no known urothelial pathology. And then we have an unanswered question as to what's gone wrong with signaling. Why are we getting inappropriate messages about bladder fullness to the cortex? We don't know yet. There's also the myogenic hypothesis and that suggests that the central problem is abnormal excitability and contractility of the detrusor muscle itself. So remember, normally the detrusor muscle is a very stable muscle. It gradually stretches and stores. You might get little twitches that signal progressive filling, but you do not get contraction of the detrusor muscle until it approaches capacity. But one theory is that something changes in either the innervation, the communication, or the function of the detrusor muscle fibers so that the detrusor contracts and empties at a much lower cut point. So what's the bottom line? We're not sure what causes this syndrome. We're not sure what makes the bladder feel and act full at low volumes. We do know how it presents, and we know a lot about treatment. So presentation is usually pretty clear-cut. One of the most common reports is the patient says, I'll just be sitting at my desk. I'll just be going about my business. I'll just be passing medications. I'll be doing whatever at my job, and all of a sudden, I have to go, and I have to go right then. And I know that if I don't get up and get to the bathroom in time, I'm going to leak. That intense urgency, abnormal urgency is coupled with a total belief that if you don't get to the bathroom within a very short period of time, you will leak. It's very different from normal urgency. It occurs suddenly, full-blown, and with the belief that leakage is imminent. Frequency. We talked about frequency when we talked about assessment. We said that normal frequency, normal voiding frequency, is less than eight voids in 24 hours. And abnormal frequency is more than eight voids in 24 hours. We also talked about the fact that people do not typically sit around and count how many times they urinate you know, across the course of a day. So an adult usually cannot tell you how many voids they had in the past 24 hours. However, an adult can almost always tell you their usual voiding interval. Normally, the voiding interval is three hours or more, but in patients with overactive bladder and urge incontinence, the usual voiding interval is less than two hours. So 
that's the other thing they tell you. I'm running to the bathroom all the time. If I'm making a trip, no one wants to go with me because I'm stopping every hour, hour and a half. I have to stop. So urgency, frequency, and nocturia, of course. If your bladder stores only limited volumes of urine, you are not going to make it through the night. You're going to get up to void. Then other symptoms that are not reported by every patient, but are reported by a significant number, low voided volumes. When we do bladder charts, we typically find someone's running to the bathroom. They sense intense urgency. They may or may not leak on the way. And then when they get there, they void 50 to 75 milliliters, which makes them really angry. I ran down the hall. I took out three people on the way. I almost wet the floor, and when I got in there, that's all I did. Leakage in response to stimuli. So, I don't know if when you were a kid, if you were ever part of a group to take a kid's hand, take a kid at camp, they're asleep, you put their hand in water to see if they'll wet the bed. <laughs> Hopefully you didn't do that. And of course, I just heard it from other people. I never participated. But cold, running water, can trigger intense urgency in a patient with overactive bladder. So sometimes they'll say, I thought I was okay, I walked outside, it was so cold, immediately I had to go. Or I thought I was okay and then somebody turned on the water and then I had to go. So leakage in response to stimuli. Key in the lot syndrome. We described this earlier. Key in the lot syndrome means you're driving home, you're okay, Yes, you're aware that you've got urine in the bladder. You're planning to go to the bathroom when you get home. You get home, get out of the car, get up to the door, and the minute you put the key in the lock, you're overwhelmed with urgency. Why? We don't totally understand that, but we know that some voiding cues are subliminal, subconscious, so that when you walk into the bathroom, you might experience an increase in urgency because now you're in the bathroom and that causes some subliminal um, signaling to your cortex. It may be something like that, but that key in the lock associated with intense onset of urgency, that's another indication of overactive bladder. Leakage during intercourse, we don't totally understand this, what causes that, but we do know from a number of patients that is, it can be the most bothersome symptom. Sometimes it's the one thing that brought them in. It's like it was one thing to run to the bathroom all the time. It's one thing to wonder if I'm going to make it. It's one thing to hop up and down all night long. But leaking during sex, no, I can't have that. We have got to figure out what this is. And then toilet mapping. We totally understand that. If you can't trust your bladder, if you have frequency and urgency, then you're always gonna to want to know where the nearest toilet is. So when you talk to people with overactive bladder and urgent incontinence, they can tell you where every bathroom is in their workplace. They can tell you the best fast food restaurants to stop on their way into work, and they don't go anywhere without checking out restroom facilities. Now notice that the first three are in uh, bold, urgency, frequency, and nocturia. That combination of symptoms is considered highly indicative of overactive bladder before you even do anything else. So those are the classic three. 
Now, we mentioned briefly the fact that elderly individuals may experience a combination of this overactive bladder syndrome and also have impaired detrusor contractility. It's frequent labeled DHIC, detrusor hyperactivity, so an abnormally twitchy bladder. It tries to contract at low volumes with impaired contractility. So it's like this, but it never effectively empties. So DHIC, sometimes seen in the elderly. Again, the take home message from us, even if a patient comes in the door with absolutely classic presentation of overactive bladder and urge incontinence, we never ever assume that there's no element of retention until we ask the right questions, do the right examination, and obtain a post-void residual if indicated. So we've already said the presumptive diagnosis is made based on clinical presentation. It is very important to rule out other pathologic conditions that could cause urgency and frequency. So we always get a urinalysis to rule out urinary tract infection and we ask about associated symptoms. We get a urinalysis and screen for hematuria, which might be indicative of bladder cancer. Our urinalysis tells us whether or not there's any glucosuria, which indicates poorly controlled diabetes. So always, always do a screening urinalysis. You also want to rule out voiding dysfunction because you remember that the clinical presentation for overactive bladder and urge incontinence overlaps the clinical presentation of voiding dysfunction and retention. So frequency, urgency, low voided volumes, and nocturia are common both in overactive bladder and in retention. The difference is the patient in retention also says things like, I never feel as if I empty. It takes me a long time to start and then I just go little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit till I'm done and then sometimes I dribble. They frequently have suprapubic tenderness or flank pain. So many other indicators of retention. So these are the things we check for. Do you have any feelings of incomplete emptying? Do you have any conditions that make you higher risk for retention? If you're male, do you have benign prostate hypertrophy? If you're female, have you ever been diagnosed with cystocele or pelvic organ prolapse? What did I see in my physical exam? We're always going to do our abdominal percussion, so we're gonna percuss from the xiphoid down, looking for a change in percussion note that could be indicative of bladder distension. We're going to get a uroflow, or we're going to ask you to describe your urinary stream or we're gonna show you those four pictures of normal, explosive, poor, and intermittent and get you to pick the one that's most like you. Even one little shred of concern about retention and I'm gonna do a post-void residual. So in general, we diagnose overactive bladder, urge incontinence based on history and physical urinalysis to rule out other conditions, post-void residual to rule out retention if we have any reason to be concerned. What about definitive diagnosis? Well, to make a definitive diagnosis that the bladder's contracting when it should be storing, 
you would have to do urodynamic studies. You would have to do a cystometrogram. And what a cystometrogram would show is one of two things. It would either show that as the bladder filled to, say, 150, 175, the patient experienced intense urgency and had to terminate the study. That shows you the bladder does not have normal capacity. Or it would show that at, say, 150, the patient experienced sudden urgency and there was leakage, an inappropriate contraction. So what people really want to know is, what can we do about this? This is a pretty common problem. What can be done? And the answer is, fortunately, a lot. We have a lot to offer these patients. So let's start with simple things, lifestyle interventions. If you have a patient who's obese, you want to at least talk to them about weight loss, find out if that's a goal they have. Just let them know that obesity is associated with incontinence and with overactive bladder and that weight loss has been shown to be beneficial. If you have a patient who is a smoker, they need to know that nicotine has been shown to be a bladder irritant and to contribute to frequency and urgency and potentially leakage. And are they interested in smoking cessation or nicotine reduction? How can we help them? We want to at least talk to the person with overactive bladder urge incontinence about the potential impact of dietary irritants like caffeine, like aspartame, like citrus juices, like carbonated beverages. Would they be willing to do a one to two week trial in which they reduce their intake of known and suspected irritants to see does it make a difference for them? If I cut my caffeine in half and find that I cut my voiding episodes in half, I might be very motivated to stay on a restricted caffeine intake program. And of course, we always manage the bowel. So if this patient's constipated, we're gonna do a clean out, we're gonna get them on adequate fiber and fluid so that we eliminate an overly full bowel as a contributing factor to their overactive bladder. We're gonna do everything we can to make toileting as fast as possible. So if I'm hurrying to the bathroom, I'm experiencing intense urgency, I don't wanna be fumbling with my clothes. I wanna be able to just pull down my pants, pull up my skirt, whatever. So look at their clothing. Maybe you need to make some suggestions about modifications that would make toileting faster and easier. But then the big intervention is pelvic muscle exercises and bladder retraining. Now, why are we talking about pelvic muscle exercises when overactive bladder is a problem with the bladder, not a problem with the pelvic floor, not a problem with the sphincter? There is a feedback loop between the pelvic floor muscles and the bladder. When you contract the pelvic floor muscles and the sphincter muscles, it activates a feedback loop to the bladder that inhibits bladder contraction. Kind of like that feedback loop says, nope, the door's closed, settle down. So if you have a patient with strong pelvic floor muscles, they can contract those muscles activate that feedback loop and inhibit bladder contractions.
And then there's bladder retraining. That's also known as bladder drill, and the goal is to take a bad bladder and turn it into a good bladder, treating overactive bladder with behavior modification. The bladder is a muscle. We can retrain that muscle. So bladder retraining is a program designed to re-establish normal bladder capacity and normal voiding intervals. Essentially, we want to put the patient back in control. We tell them, right now you're being jerked around by your urethra in your bladder. We want to stop that. We want to put you back in the control seat. It requires the patient to learn bladder control strategies, also known as urge management strategies or urge suppression strategies. Once they master those strategies and they can use those strategies to control urgency, then we put them on a program where they void by the clock and we gradually lengthen the voiding interval. So we take this bladder that's used to emptying every two hours or maybe every one and a half hours. It's only used to holding 150 milliliters before it says, that's it, you've got to empty me. And we're stretching it back out essentially. We're saying, no, you can hold more. You're a muscle, you can stretch, you can store. So you're going to hold 175 and I'm not taking you to the bathroom until it's been two hours. And then I'm gonna get you to hold 200 and I'm gonna delay my voiding interval for two hours and 15 minutes. So we're taking the bladder back up the path toward normal behavior. Now, the patient has to understand what we're doing, why we're doing it, because it's not easy. They have to resist the urge to void. And when you have that intense urge, what feels better than anything is just to go to the bathroom and void. They have to power through that. They have to delay voiding, even when it feels very uncomfortable. So they have to be cognitively intact, and they have to be motivated. So let's walk through the program. Your first priority is to teach the patient bladder control strategies, also known as urge inhibition or urge suppression strategies. They have to be able to use these measures to control urgency and to delay voiding. And it's gonna come down to freeze, squeeze, and breathe. So let's talk about each of those. So freeze, we want them to stand still or sit down. Why? Well, think about a person's normal reaction to sudden intense urgency. So they're sitting here, they're doing whatever. Let's say I'm sitting in my recliner or whatever, I'm working crossword puzzles, I'm doing whatever. All of a sudden I have this sudden intense urge to void. What do I tend to do? Push up, get up out of the chair, and hurry off to the bathroom. Now remember, I've got this twitchy bladder that's on the verge of contracting. When I push down and stand up, what have I done? I've caused a rapid increase in abdominal pressure, which is like punching my bladder. The last thing you wanna do with a twitchy bladder. So you do not want to jump up, and you don't want to rush down the hall. Because the more you do, the more the abdominal pressure goes up, and the more punches you get to the bladder wall. So you want to stand still or sit down. Then you want to squeeze. You want to engage your pelvic floor muscles because when you contract the pelvic floor, what do you do? 
You send a feedback message to the bladder that says, sit down, relax, it's not a good time. Currently, they recommend three to five quick flicks. So it means contract, relax. Contract, relax. Contract, relax. Do at least three, you may do five. And every time it's saying to the bladder, chill, calm down, not now. And many individuals report that this is the most important strategy for them. That once they do those three quick flicks, there's a marked reduction in urgency. Breathe. After you've done your three to five quick flicks, you're going to focus on deep breathing. Deep breathing has a quieting effect, so you know it can drop blood pressure, it can drop heart rate, and it can interrupt a bladder contraction. They've shown that in the lab. So stand still or sit down, three quick flicks, focus on your breathing. Focusing on breathing also takes your focus off of your bladder. And then you're going to alternate your pelvic muscle contractions and your deep breathing until the urge subsides. Once that urgency is under control, you can stand and walk to the bathroom. So goal number one, teach me how to control urgency. I can't do anything else until you teach me that. Once I can control urgency using free squeeze breathe, then you can have me complete a bladder chart so that I know what my current voiding interval is. And let's say my current voiding interval ranges from 50 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes. Then you're gonna start me out voiding every hour and 15 minutes. You're gonna say, what time do you get up in the morning? 6.30, okay, so you're gonna void at 6.30, you're gonna void at 7.45, you're gonna void at nine, you're going to avoid it 10, 15, et cetera, et cetera. Now this is important point. They are going to be voiding by the clock. That is not how we usually void. We do not void by the clock. We void by the urge. We void when our bladder says go. But for this patient, their bladder's out of control. So they have to take back control and they're like, you're not in control. I'm in control. We're voiding by the clock. That means if it's time to void and I have no urge, I go and I void anyway. If it's 15 minutes before time for me to void and I develop sudden urgency, I use freeze, squeeze, breathe to control the urgency. I wait 15 minutes and then I walk to the bathroom. So you void on schedule, you void by the clock, you start with current interval, and you advance it by about 15 minutes each week until you get to a relatively normal voiding interval. And at any point that that person experiences intense urgency, they use freeze, squeeze, breathe to control it. It's helpful to show the patient this little um, diagram where it shows the urge pattern. So you have sudden onset of urgency but then if you contract the pelvic muscles and you breathe through it, that urgency goes away. Now it might come back and you use the same strategies to control the urgency the second time and the third time. So let's say my next time to void 
is at 3.30. It's 10 after 3. I just had to use Freeze, Squeeze, Breathe to manage intense urgency. Okay, now what? Well, if I just sit there and watch my watch, watch the clock, thinking, wow, I've still got, I've still got 25 minutes. I don't know if I'm going to make it. 25 minutes, that's a long time. I won't make it because what am I doing? I'm focusing on my bladder and I'm giving myself negative messages. So what you want to do is you want to take your brain elsewhere. You want to distract yourself. So a good thing to do is to make a phone call, read, play a game on your phone, do online shopping. So I remember looking at this lady's bladder chart. It was very um, instructive and it was instructive for her when I pointed it out. So her usual avoiding interval at that time was about every hour and a half, and she had a lot of problems with frequency and urgency. But at one point, she went three and a half hours without voiding, and you know what she was doing? She was shopping. And she's like, oh, I remember that. I kept thinking, I can try on one more thing, or I can do one more store. So you can use distraction. Here's what happens when you use distraction. You take your cortex elsewhere. So the cortex is managing all of this input, right? And if you are using distraction, basically when your bladder sends a message to the cortex, the cortex isn't paying so much attention because it's focused over here. So it's like you make a phone call, make a phone call, make another phone call. Finally, the cortex says, cortex, can I help you? And it's like, this is the bladder. And the cortex says, hold, please, because you're focused on something else. Use distractions. So you're gonna void by the clock. You're gonna use freeze, squeeze, breathe to control urgency. You're gonna use distraction to delay voiding until the established time. What if I experience sudden intense urgency and I cannot control it with freezing, squeezing, breathing techniques? Give me permission to get up and go to the bathroom. Having an incontinent episode doesn't help at all. So give me permission, encourage me, remind me that this is a program. It doesn't happen in a day, it's gonna take some time. What about at night? Should I get up and void? Or should I go through free squeeze breathe in the middle of the night? Get up and void. It's the fastest way to get back to sleep and to avoid sleep disruption or excessive sleep disruption. And what you know is as your bladder capacity improves and as your voiding interval lengthens, your hours of uninterrupted sleep are going to lengthen as well. Now there is an alternate approach. Um, you teach them free squeeze breathe and then you tell them every time you feel the urge to go, use free squeeze breathe and delay for as long as possible and try to gradually increase the delay period. The problem is this is not nearly as defined, so it's harder for a patient to know exactly how long they should be waiting, how often they should be voiding, and to know if they're making progress. So most of the time we use the other approach that we just discussed. Well, what else out, is out there for treatment of overactive bladder and urge incontinence? What if my patient's really struggling with bladder retraining? They're trying. They're telling me, you know, sometimes I can make that work and sometimes it's like no matter what I do, the urgency just overwhelms me. Or they might say, the problem is 
that when I'm at work, I'm so afraid I'm going to have an incontinent episode. It's really hard for me to use freeze, squeeze, breathe and to delay voiding because I'm afraid I'm setting myself up. Then I get into panic mode. Okay, well, maybe for that patient, pharmacologic therapy would be beneficial, and maybe we can use pharmacologic therapy in conjunction with bladder retraining. Most of the pharmacologic agents that we use work by reducing bladder contractility. So it's an option for people who are unable to participate in bladder retraining. They're just unwilling at this time. They have inadequate response, or they're really struggling with making it work. So let's quickly review the medications that are available for treatment of overactive bladder and urge incontinence. We've talked about these briefly before, but we're gonna go over them again. So you have your whole category of anticholinergic medications. And remember that these work by blocking cholinergic receptor sites. It's cholinergic receptor sites that control detrusor contractility. So if you plot those sites, you almost always get reduced frequency, reduced urgency. The problem is that adverse effects are very common, especially in the elderly, because not only do you have cholinergic receptors in your bladder, you have cholinergic receptors in other organs throughout the body. So constipation is incredibly common, and that can set you back. Dry mouth is very common. That makes you want to drink a lot. That can set you back. Heat intolerance is common, and confusion, especially in the elderly. Of the anticholinergics, oxybutynine, immediate release, that's your standard ditropan, is the least expensive, is pretty effective in controlling frequency and urgency, but it definitely has a pretty high side effect profile. Now, one thing you should know about is that oxybutynine is now available in both sustained release and transdermal forms, which means you get fewer side effects, you get more prolonged benefit, but you pay a higher cost. As a result, most clinicians have moved away from prescribing anticholinergic medications, and now they typically prescribe antimuscarinic medications. Now this is a newer classification of anticholinergic drugs. Antimuscarinics specifically target the receptors that control bladder contractility, the M3 receptors. It means they have, these drugs have very limited effect on other cholinergic receptors throughout the body, therefore many fewer side effects. But they're newer meds, so they're more expensive. Now, within this category, there's a number of medications that are out there that fit into this category. Trospium, talteridine, solifenacin, and darafenacin, they do not cross the blood-brain barrier very well, so they're much less likely to cause confusion in the elderly. So if I was prescribing an antimuscarinic for an elderly patient, I would lean strongly toward one of these four. The other thing to know is that Antimuscarinic medications, even though they have a lot of similarities, there's enough difference in each medication so that you might have a patient who responds very poorly to one and responds very well to another. So let's say I tried trospium and the patient didn't do well at all on trospium, just didn't get much benefit. Should I just say, well, you're not going to respond to antimuscarinics? No, I should try another one. 
The newest medication for overactive bladder and urgent incontinence is the beta-3 adrenergic agonist Mirabegron. Now remember that throughout the storage cycle, the sympathetic nervous system is in control. When the sympathetic nervous system is in control, it's releasing neurotransmitters that act on the adrenergic agonist receptors in the bladder neck to cause tightening but it acts on the beta-3 adrenergic receptors in the bladder wall to cause relaxation. This is a beta-3 adrenergic agonist, so it mimics the effects of the sympathetic nervous system on the bladder wall during the storage cycle. It's a sympathomimetic, so the most significant side effect is hypertension but in a relatively small percentage of patients, seven to 11%. So what if this patient did not do well with the anti-muscarinics? They're not, they're not hypertensive at baseline, worth a trial of Mirabegron, unless it's cost prohibitive. Let's say their insurance covers it, we're gonna do a trial of Mirabegron, then I would want to be sure that the patient was monitoring their blood pressure. On a botulinum toxin A is used less often, but as you know, it significantly reduces contractility. It's potentially a paralytic in high enough doses. So this can be administered into the bladder itself to reduce contractility and administered at intervals, obviously not widely used at this point. Topical estrogen can be tremendously helpful for the female with atrophic urethritis because if you reduce inflammation in the urethra and the bladder neck, you reduce frequency and urgency. What about other therapies? What about surgery? What about neuromodulation? Well, yes, there are two forms of neuromodulation that have been effective in treating overactive bladder and urgent incontinence, at least in some studies. So neuromodulation, the whole basis for the therapy is that it has been shown that we can use low levels of electrical stimulation to modulate the function of the nerves that control bladder and sphincter function. Remember, those are the nerves that come off the cord at S2 to S4. The pudendal nerve allows you to voluntarily contract and relax the pelvic floor. The parasympathetics cause bladder contractility. So with Refractory overactive bladder is like, I have an overly contractile bladder. Can I use low levels of electrical stimulation to reduce bladder contractility, to basically give the bladder the message, chill out? And studies to date indicate that, yes, maybe we can do this. So it's indicated only for refractory overactive bladder, that's re overactive bladder not responding to behavioral strategies, not responding to pharmacotherapy. And at present, there are two options, inner stem, which is sacral nerve stimulation, and PTNS, which is percutaneous tibial nerve stimulation. So interstem, um, I'm using the trade name because right now it's the only one on the market, it's by Medtronic. This is sacral nerve stimulation. So they first do a trial, they bring the patient in, and in an office procedure, they do percutaneous placement of lead wires that terminate adjacent to the sacral nerves that control the bladder. 
and then the leads are connected to a battery-operated stimulator that the patient wears on their waistband. Now, the patient keeps records of voiding frequency, and if there is at least a 50% reduction in episodes of frequency and leakage, they will undergo surgical placement of internal leads. Those internal leads will be connected to a battery-operated stimulator that is now inserted into the upper buttock. The stimulator can be externally programmed to achieve optimal results. It does have to be replaced when the battery dies, which is usually every three to five years. Now, there are reported success rates of up to 70%. However, remember we have limited data. Not every center does this. And also, you have to remember that 40% of patients do require repeat surgery for complications. The leads migrated, there was infection, whatever. Bottom line, we just need to remember that this might be an option. And if we have a patient who fails standard therapy, we want to refer them to a center where they do sacral neuromodulation so they can work them up and determine whether or not they're a candidate. What about percutaneous tibial nerve stimulation? So this involves placement of a 34-gauge needle above the ankle adjacent to the tibial nerve. So you can see it in this slide. And then you place a surface electrode on the arch of the foot, plantar surface, and you connect it to a stimulator device. And then when you activate the device, it stimulates the tibial nerve, which has been found to inhibit detrusor activity, detrusor contractility, even though we don't know exactly how it works. Also, studies have shown that repeated short-term stimulation produces persistent post-treatment effects. So obviously, this is much less invasive than the interstem procedure and definitely deserves more study and possibly more widespread use. Treatments usually last 30 minutes, they're repeated weekly for 12 weeks, and then typically you've got that persistent post-treatment um, post effect. After that initial 12 weeks of treatment, treatment past that point is based on any um, recurrence of symptoms. Now the reported efficacy is 55% compared to the efficacy of sham treatment, 20% but it's relatively new. It's been tried on relatively small um, groups of patients, so we definitely need more data. What else can be done? Is there anything else we can do from a surgical perspective? Well, some patients who have refractory overactive bladder are found to actually have a low capacity bladder. Some of these patients have both low capacity, high pressure bladders. These patients can benefit from surgical augmentation, enlargement of the bladder. So what they do is they literally open the bladder, they call it a bivalve procedure, so they open it up, they take a section of bowel, they open that section of bowel, detubularize it, they attach that section of bowel to the bladder. So that does two things. First of all, it increases capacity because you've made the bladder bigger using that piece of bowel. Secondly, you've interrupted the muscle fiber so you've significantly reduced contractility. So it's converted the bladder from 
low capacity, high pressure, which is what you don't want, to high capacity, low pressure, which is what you do want. The problem is that in interrupting the muscle fibers, you significantly reduce detrusor contractility, and many times contractility is reduced to a level that does not provide effective emptying. So a lot of patients then have to use clean intermittent catheterization. It means you don't use this procedure unless there are significant indications like that high pressure, low capacity bladder that threatens the upper tracts. What about absorbent products in skincare? Yes, most of your patients with overactive bladder and urgent continence will require absorbent products until they reacquire bladder control. So you're gonna need something that gives moderate to high volume absorptive capacity. Most of the time, that's either your pull-up brief or your side closure brief. So summarizing overactive bladder and urgent continence was the underlying problem, bladder dysfunction. The bladder contracts when it should be storing. What's the clinical presentation? The three main symptoms, frequency, urgency, and nocturia. Leakage occurs in some patients if they don't get to the bathroom in time. Many patients report key in the lock syndrome. Most of them admit to toilet mapping and some experience leakage during intercourse, which can be the most problematic symptom. What can we do for these patients? We want to eliminate all reversible factors always. That includes a trial period of reduced intake of potential irritants, as well as elimination of any constipation, as well as attention to weight loss. We definitely want to know that they know how to use their pelvic floor muscles because strong contraction of the pelvic floor muscles inhibits bladder wall contractility. Once we know they can do that, then we can teach them urge inhibition strategies, freeze, squeeze, breathe, and we can put them on a bladder retraining program. If they fail behavioral therapies, then we can look at medications, anticholinergics, antimuscarinics. Neuromodulation has been shown to be effective for refractive, refractory overactive bladder for a very small percentage of patients who have a high pressure, low capacity bladder, augmentation cystoplasty may be a benefit. Okay, that does it for overactive bladder. You're through with this class. Thanks a lot.